Let's all bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we stand here in your house on your day. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather in your name and to sing the truth of these songs, which account for the blessings that you have given us beyond measure. Lord, we ask that you place our heart, our head, in the place it needs to be to make full use and receive all that is in store from you on this day together, especially from your word. Lord, we are also mindful of those in need of prayer, those within our body, those outside this church body, and Lord, full aware that there isn't much in this world that works as it's supposed to as a result of the fall and all the things that happen as a result of that. We ask your blessing on those in the way of a major hurricane headed to Louisiana. Lord, that you'd be so pleased to mitigate the loss of property and especially life. Lord, may those look to you for their safety. We thank you here again for this day, this time. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, it's always good to see each of you on the Lord's Day. We don't take for granted that we have the ability to meet together and have been through times where we were unable to meet together. Still mindful of those uh, who are affected in one way or another by um, reasons for which they're not here. But this is the day the Lord has made. We rejoice and be glad in it. I would like to invite you to turn to the book of Esther for one last time, as far as this series goes, to its final chapter, chapter 10. It's the shortest of, of these chapters. And just to recap where we've been so far, it was 14 weeks ago, whether that seems right or not. Uh, we, in habit, do look through a summer series from holiday to holiday. 18 weeks ago, not 18, 14 weeks ago, the story began with an account of a dramatic epic party thrown by King Ahasuerus. Lasted for 180 days. They did whatever they wanted to. It was meant to look absolutely over-the-top extreme. And after that six months worth of partying, there was another week-long feast for any and everybody to attend. The first one was only for the governing officials. And during that week, anybody could go look at the king's throne. Anybody could look at his golden couches. Anybody could drink his wine and eat his food. And on the seventh day of that feast, he called for his queen. He had showed everyone everything he had. It was time for them to see his queen only problem, she didn't come. And that was the end of her. And then as the next chapter opens, we're introduced to Mordecai and to his cousin, Esther, who was orphaned. He adopted her as his daughter. And it would be her who would wind up the new queen of Persia after a long, elaborate, and uh, sophisticated contest she won his approval and favor. After that, we're introduced to this man named Haman, who became prime minister, he's second in command. 
And he didn't like the fact that one man named Mordecai, we'd already met, would not bow down to him. Everybody else did, but he wouldn't. So he, through his conniving, convinced the king to allow him to write into law something that was in the best interest of Persia, and that was to kill all of them. Everyone like Mordecai, all the Jews, to be killed on one day about a year from then. As the story goes, Mordecai hears of an assassination plot against the king. Because Esther's now the queen, she actually has a voice to speak to the king. He finds out just in time his life is saved, but there's no credit given to Mordecai. It becomes very significant later in the story, but at that point it's almost forgotten. Now, because of this law that all the Jews are going to be killed, the most dramatic portions of the book, which took most of our time, was watching how the reversal should be carried out. The reversal is any good story. There's uh, lots of options. Then there's complication. There's a crisis. Must be resolved. One last ditch effort and all is saved and everyone lives happily ever after. That's how all the good stories come together. But this one took some time. She planned feast in order to figure out when to ask the king at the right moment. And then there was this time where Mordecai is honored. The thing that he did to help the king is remembered. One night the king couldn't sleep. Haman's the one that has to honor him. And the prophecy over him is that if this has started, it'll likely end. And before the story's over, he and his sons are executed horribly. A new law is written so that Israel can defend itself. And Israel's enemies are defeated. And the story and its meaning are thus. God never forgets his covenant promises. Even during a period of time where no one mentions the sound of his name. So, last week, next to the last chapter, we learned how they commemorated the whole event with a two-day feast. They call it Purim. Hebrews celebrate this to this day. And the purpose was so they never, ever, ever forget that God takes care of his people. So all that's left is the last chapter. And Esther's name is not even mentioned. It's just three verses concerning the king and Mordecai. But this is how we conclude. Let's read this. We'll pray for help. And we'll see what's here to understand and obey. Verse 1, chapter 10, the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. All the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for 14 weeks to study this book verse by verse. Lord, we thank you for the last three verses. We ask that you open to us their meaning, that you would help us understand what they mean, and then help us 
accordingly situate our lives in obedience to them. We thank you for what we've learned. We thank you for how we've seen you in this book and how we've seen ourselves. We ask that you do that for us once more. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's look back at that verse number one. There's three verses. We'll have three points. First verse was King Ahasuerus. We know him also as Xerxes. Imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Mentioning the coastlands is another way of saying everybody got taxed. All the way to the coast. You can't tax further than the coast. He taxed all the way to the coast. This man still rules his 127 provinces. And with exception of a few Greeks, if you're alive at this point in history... This man is your king, and your tax liability just was raised. So, point number one, Xerxes raises the rent. That's how we'll, what we'll call this. And uh, really, as far as extrapolating what this means to the rest of the story, it, it sounds like other books in the Bible where uh, really the story's over. This is just a, a counting of certain things uh, that don't necessarily fit in the body of the story, but they're useful to mention. This is government at its best, I suppose. What does government do best? What, what, what is sure in life? Death and taxes. That, that's what governments do. Um, you could say that this would be a way to close the book the way the book opened. Xerxes is still very much king and does what he pleases. A lot has changed since the first chapter and the last chapter. They've gone through two prime ministers, or one, they've got their second. One was an evil man, the other's a great man. But it doesn't mean that the taxes will not be raised. You could also go backward and dig up on the points that were made earlier. That we tend to worry about things that don't actually ever take place that even though there was a law that said all the Jews would die and then a law that uh, counteracted that law such that uh, very few if any Jews died they still pay taxes taxes still go up Xerxes is still king so for life some things never change we're right back where we started life as usual under exile and you could also Make the case that there's nothing inherently wrong in raising taxes or paying taxes. Now, none of us like either of those. We'd rather keep all our money in our pockets, not feel as though we put our money into bag with holes in it. Samuel told the people of Israel if they wanted a king, it would cost them. Kings are expensive, right? He said he'll take the best of your sons. Put them in his army. He'll take your daughters. He'll make them servants. The rent will raise. That's how it goes. And that was Israel. This is a pagan culture. I'm sure it would be worse. Somebody's got to pay for those gold couches we read about in the first chapter. I doubt he's interested in cutting tax rates and melting down the golden couches. Paul would tell us in the New Testament... Because things are the same today as they were in this time, which is Old Testament. 
This is Romans 13, and this kind of helps put to rest any angst we have when considering Christians and citizenship and the country they find themselves and uh, how they should act and how they should obey, how they should maintain their testimony. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. That would go for Xerxes or any world leader. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That was verse 1. You skip to verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. So it actually angers the Lord not to submit to the government that he put in place. But also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Well, you wish that weren't there, didn't you? For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This is a comprehensive list meant to maintain order and to preserve testimony. Whether we like this or not, this is given to us. To help us be better witnesses to the blood of Jesus Christ and the world we live in. I looked it up just because I was curious. I wanted to know, on average, middle uh, class citizens in the United States of America, as far as a family unit, how much taxes are paid during the year? It's somewhere around $15,000. Now, that's all of them. That's that's Fed, state, sales tax, um, personal property tax, all of it. What do you get for that $15,000? You got a road to drive on to church this morning. Ask a missionary about roads they drive on. See what they think of those. They pay taxes there too, but then it's not as good of a deal. Um, And by the way, I learned not long ago that 64 will carry you from Manio to Murphy. One road in this state, 560 miles. So you can get from one end to the other without even having to turn off of that road. Though I think in many little towns you'll have to pay attention to the signs to make sure uh, it, you don't go straight when you should have went left or right. You can go from Wilmington to California on I-40. We have good roads. That's just one thing. We've got a representative system of government. You have a, a congressman. You have two senators. You have a president. Some might prefer the way that works. Others may say, I didn't vote for the man. But there's order and there's stability as a result of these things. Uh, You've got all types of regulation that make sure your utility companies don't take any more than they can by law. And most of them take up to. And there's lots of suits to make sure they stay on their side of the line there. And you could go on and, and on and on. It's not a bad deal. In fact, it's a very good deal. And if you take into account that most of those families spend almost half of that amount just for their cell phone, internet, and streaming and cable entertainment, it's a really good deal. So taxes aren't a bad thing. Acting ugly about taxes may impugn our witness. But what is said here, And what is seen, I think, in the way Mordecai handles himself and the way Paul tells us in the New Testament 
is there certain things that you pay because they're owed. There's certain revenue that you pay because it makes sense. Uh, there's certain respect to whom is owed, honor to whom is owed. It not only works for government, it works for other social institutions. Uh, had the opportunity on a trip with one of my sons. It was his birthday. Sometimes we get out of town and do nothing together. And uh, sometimes I'll show them things. It was time to pay for a dinner, and I showed how to add a tip, add that up and sign. But I explained the rationale for this. In our culture, you do this. And it shouldn't be based on the, your, on the service. It should be based on a good faith understanding of how the system works. Those people don't make a normal paycheck. It's a piddling paycheck. They count on the tips to make it worth their time. If there were no tips, they couldn't keep their jobs. That, and I, I told how your mother worked in a situation like that, and I learned a whole new insight on tipping and how it works or doesn't. And then I wished I'd never asked, but for a time while I was in seminary, I just thought, every time I eat on a Sunday, I'm going to ask. So, how does the Sunday crowd tip? Not good. In fact, it's bad. Most servers will tell you they could do without Sunday lunch. I wish that wasn't the case. But I think there's a point as Christians in a culture we share with, with everyone else. There's certain things you pay. There's certain honor you give. Again, yesterday, uh, at the Ballantine Pool. We live in Ballantine. That's our subdivision. Big uh, elementary school there, and there's a pool. But the lifeguard doesn't work after school starts. So right now, before the season's technically over, but before they shut the pool, you can go swim at your own risk. Wonderful place to just sit, watch, and listen, and observe the American species <laughs> in its own conflict resolution. Now, this is all hearsay. I wasn't there. But some boys decided it was a good idea to jump off the slide rather than slide the slide into a pool that's not deep at all. You're not supposed to dive anywhere. Well, there was an uprising of moms against these teenagers and the danger to themselves and their children that were swimming. But before it was all over, you had these young people who have driver's license uh, spinning tires and shouting ugly names to their elder, who is a lady. That would have never flown 25 years ago when I was that age. You hear me? I'm 42, and I can say that. would have never happened when the... Uh, but things have changed a bit. There's, there's no respect and honor due to where it's supposed to be due. So you read a verse that talks about taxes, you go, eh. Well, there's more in the Bible about that. It has its place. It can be abused. But until we get in a spot where things are different, we understand God put it there. There's a reason for it. Things will run more smoothly because of it. And if you didn't vote, you probably shouldn't complain. And if you did, you should keep it to a minimum. Let's look at the next verse. 
Let the record show is point number two. Ever heard that? Let the record show. That's a way of saying write this down. It goes in the minutes. Hear it in court proceedings, official hearings, and so forth. Verse 2, and all the acts of his power, that's Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and might, the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written? And this is similar. You hear this all the time in the Kings and the Chronicles. All this that I were not mentioning. Are they not written in, and then here you have, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. Now in all other cases, they're talking about books having to do with uh, the Hebrews. In this case, the official record books of the empire of Media and Persia. So there's stuff that's not mentioned in these three verses, or this whole book, details that took place that were recorded in this book. If you went to the library and you asked for this book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Medo and Persia, you'd have a problem because it doesn't exist. As far as anyone knows, there's no copy. Now, it doesn't mean that a copy might not be dug up at some point in the future. It's just we don't know where it is. But there are other places in the Scripture where the Scriptures, we consider the Bible inspired, mentions other uninspired books and mentions them as if they have full faith and confidence of their historical accuracy. Now, they might not be inspired, but it doesn't mean that they're not necessarily true. In fact, Esther is not mentioned in any non-biblical books that we know of. Of the things said about Ahasuerus, she isn't mentioned. doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that the record was lost. We don't have these records. It does help when you're having conversations with others who might not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. To say, well, check with Josephus. Or check with some of these other historical writings that happen at the time that do cover things that are mentioned in the scriptures. But in this case, we've got a book that isn't. Um, it also gives us the importance of writing things down. There's a reason why we take minutes, right? We've got some members within the church that have that position from time to time. Minute-taking. Um, we thank them for doing that because I don't know that it's the most exciting work in the whole world to take minutes. But you've been in staff meetings where people say, Is somebody, anybody writing this down from the Capitol to the state Capitol to our members' meetings here at Wake Chapel, even to our staff meetings, we write things down. Why? Because someone else later down the road might need to know what happened. That's why we do it. And what's good about this verse is not that we can't find this book, but it lends credibility. This author of Esther is writing about the author of other official records that at that time did exist. It was just a long time ago, and we don't have copies of it. But this wasn't just made up. These things really happened in time and space. All right, point number three, the third verse. Mordecai was a great leader is point number three. So the king raises the rent. Let the record show. Mordecai was a great leader. Verse three. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus 
And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So we got more here than in the other verses. We'll spend more time. Even so, it's rather straightforward. Second in command. At the beginning of the story, this man was uh, in the king's gate, as it's described. So he had a federal position, but he had no access to the king. Now, there are a lot of people that have federal jobs that have no access to the president of the United States. And they may have, statistically, less chance of ever having access to the king than maybe someone who doesn't have a federal job. In fact, if you're a really, really good athlete, you probably have better chances of seeing the president. Uh, There are many more federal positions than there are A-listed athletic positions. How did he get there, though? Because from the beginning of the story to the end is quite a climb up the ladder. Why was he promoted? Well, you remember he did save the king's life. That didn't hurt his chances. But then again... That doesn't necessarily qualify one to run an empire. And that's what the prime minister would do. Because the king is busy throwing big parties. And collecting a massive harem. And letting everybody and anybody do what they want to do. And giving his signet ring away to write laws. He's not the one that runs the empire. Though he's the one that spends most of the money that he raises in taxes, I suppose. So this is a big deal. So it's not specifically said if we had access to this book, it might help. We don't. But I don't think it's unlike the story of Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon. Both were foreigners but rose to power. With Joseph, the same position. And how did Joseph and Daniel wind up in those positions? One was sold on the slave block. The other was exiled. But they were found faithful in little and then were faithful in much. They were responsible. They were gifted. God's hand was on them. Whatever they did prospered. Uh, I, I don't think that with Mordecai it would be any different. Um, It says here specifically what we do have to read. He was great among the Jews. So that would mean among the Jews, he was great. He's a Jew. There's a bunch of Jews. But out of all the Jews, this one stands out. What's interesting about that is because of all the people. The Jews stand out. They're the ones that were marked for uh, annihilation, right? You would think that if you're trying to win a campaign, and I know it doesn't really one-to-one trade-off here with a monarchy than in a democratic form of government as we have, but you don't do it right, you'll get called a carpetbagger. No, you've got to be part of the people whom you represent. This is not like that. This guy is, is an exile. So he sticks out from a group that sticks out. It's not likely. It's got to be his character. It's got to be his skill. It's got to be his faithfulness and trustworthiness. That's got to be what it is. He stuck out from a people that stuck out. Not only is he great among the Jews, it says that Mordecai was popular with his people. 
I thought that an interesting translation that the, EF, the ESV would use popular. When I hear the word popular, I think about the kid in school you wish you were but probably don't like. I was never the popular one in homeschool. <laughs> that would have been my brother who could walk into a room and everybody was looking at him. Or I'd walk in first and they'd say, is your brother here? Say, sure, he's coming. Okay, then we'll have a good time. Are you leaving? Maybe. But popular. They liked him. That's a good thing. You'd rather be popular than unpopular. You know, you have people like, uh, you know, the Iron Lady who would talk about if your goal is to get people to like you, uh, then everything goes downhill from there. They will not reap the benefits of your character. It will all be spent on elevating one's self. So I would assume that doing the right thing would mean that not everyone would like you, but everyone liked Mordecai, at least his own people. And all of that can change sometimes as you move through different positions. How many of you... Uh, know someone who was uh, well thought of at the firm or the plant or wherever you work but they got a promotion and then there was no living with them what happened to them well now they have some authority this doesn't seem to have changed they like him he's popular also Mordecai sought the welfare of his people now some Politicians support the welfare of a group rather than the whole. I know how that they have certain constituencies, and there's a platform, and you'll vote based on the platform you'd like to see implemented, so forth. That against democracy. This is not. So only some of that helps us wrap our head around this. But he'd already sought that the welfare of the king, right? I mean, when we went through that where he's got knowledge that the king may be assassinated, this guy's a creep. Maybe he needs it. Maybe Mordecai can be instrumental in making sure that the plot doesn't fail. What does he do? He seeks the welfare of the government he sees as put there by God, even if it's corrupt. So he's already done that. Maybe that's one check for his character. But this means that he took care of those he served. I would think it's certain that most of the Jews under his charge would never know his face if they saw him. They don't have pictures or TV or, or any of this stuff. He's just a name to them. But they knew his name. They would never have access to his time, but they knew who he was. And evidently their lives were better because of his service. So he's popular and he has sought their welfare rather than himself. I think it would be hard to do both. And the record certainly puts the emphasis on his seeking the welfare of his people, where Haman sought the welfare of himself. And then finally here, Mordecai spoke peace to all his people. I'm not sure exactly what that means. I think I know what peace means, speaking peace. I would wholeheartedly say that that is a positive. What I thought about when I read it was a period of time 
where I worked in an interim environment, you know, between two places. And maybe you've seen this sort before, but the man that I worked for would walk into a room and set a fire just so he could put it out. Maybe you, you, you know somebody like that. And as a result, conflict usually abounded wherever he was. He could seem to find conflict in a vacuum. I don't think that's speaking peace. Some great leaders are like that. Wherever they have been, peace seems to abound. Wherever they've been, people are on the same page where they were on separate pages. Uh, Mordecai spoke peace, sought their welfare. He was popular, likely as a result of these two. Great leaders are like that. They leave peace behind them where others have left conflict. So I think you've got the ingredients for a great leader. Now, as far as his character, he's as flawed as any of the rest of us. Jeremiah 17, 9, heart, depravity check all the way. He made mistakes in this book. We already noted them. And in trying to figure out, all right, we're at the end. The book is over. What do we make? What's the central thrust of the whole book? We spent time talking about what the book was not written for. And one of the things that this book was not written for was to be a comparison of of moral uh, examples. Where, look, Esther had courage. Be like Esther. Well, there's several places like that, but there's plenty of places where you would not, as a mother, say, be like Esther at all. And the same was true with Mordecai. He's human. He's sinful. He's a man under authority and a great leader. But sometimes we need to make sure we understand that great leadership doesn't sanctify anyone. And they all have their faults. Where other side of the coin you can only take but such a scoundrel and put him in charge of a lot it doesn't always mean that the results will be what you wanted it's kind of hard to separate uh, the sacred and the secular down to the level of a soul but what do we say here what does this book mean Mordecai was a great leader is its final point That's the end of the book of Esther, but it's not the end of the book of the Bible. But because we're at the end of the book of Esther, what do we say the point was? Same as the beginning. God always keeps His covenant promises. To where it seemed to start with a lot of options, it ends with God's favor. He used Esther. He used Mordecai broken and flawed as they were to make sure his people were saved. Um, Genesis 15. That is the place in the scripture if you ever want to look and learn how you should view the promises of God to his covenant people. That is where God meets Abraham and instructs him to take a collection of animals and split them down the middle that of course is fatal they were to be sacrificed but split 
and laid out in a row where you like walk through a runway of divided animals uh, head to tail and this was very similar to the way that others would sign contracts in that time of the world and the idea is we both walk through these split carcasses and should either of us deviate from this agreement this be done to us or worse that we would split ourselves fatally in breaking this covenant. It was a contract of sorts. Well, this is what God, before there was Moses, before there was Ten Commandments, before there was pillar of fire or cloud or any of that, Abraham, I'm going to promise to you to bless your descendants like the sands of the seashore. And then the most magnificent part of the passage is when the sun goes down and this deep sleep falls over Abram and this smoking, burning torch, as it were, which looks like the burning bush or Mount Sinai or any other time we see God dwelling with His people, walks through those pieces alone. Abraham doesn't, which means all the weight of this promise being kept is hung on the actual testimony and word of God, not on any human being. So even in exile, the great question, overwhelming question was always this. Does the covenant with Abraham still stand or has it been broken and was it nullified because of our sin? Has God finally thrown us away and given us up? And the answer all through the Old Testament, including the book of Esther, is a resounding, yes, it still stands. And I'll use a girl named Esther and a man named Mordecai to make sure that you are safe. Now that's the end of Esther, but it's not the end of the Bible. At the end of the book of Esther, the end is a happy ending because they live their lives under a great leader. But the problem with the book of Esther is that everybody who lived under Mordecai happily ever after died one day. The Bible has to be written for more than just, hey, those folks lived a long and happy life and then died. No, the Bible is about what happens after a long, happy life or a short, miserable life. But what happens after you die, right? So if in the book of Esther, God, through his covenant promises, saves the lives of his people, we'll need to fast forward to the New Testament so that Jesus can save their souls. And we need to know the difference between the two of those. One of the best ways to look at it is uh, the example in John 4 where the official comes to Jesus. He finds he's in town. He says, you've got to save my son. He is at death's door. And then Jesus in responding, we talked about how odd this sounds. There's a bunch of people around. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, which is a miracle, none of you will believe. And we talked about how curious that is to say to a man whose son is dying and he's come to you for help. Now, does Jesus heal the boy? Yes, he doesn't even go. He says, you go, your son will live. The man goes, inquires of when he 
turned the corner, finds out exactly when Jesus said it would be. And then it says, he believed and his household. And from the way John writes, we're supposed to believe that that means as far as Jesus and who he said he was. The point is this. Would anybody deny that if Jesus healed this man's son and that's all he did, that would be enough to change this man's life forever and probably talk about this healer that saved his son's life? If you've got a sick kid, who can help you better than the one who can heal them? We talk about doctors this way. But at the end of the boy's life, he's still going to die naturally. Same as the father. What Jesus said when he said, unless you see miracles, you won't believe. What was all that about? To pump the brakes enough for them to realize you're talking to more than just a physician. It's the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And without him taking possession of your sin and giving him giving you his righteousness, you may save your life, but lose your soul. And that's eternal death. So I thought this is the perfect place to remind ourselves of that. Jesus put it very explicitly, almost one of these uh, deserved uh, labels, a hard saying of Jesus. He said in Matthew, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, you're worried about whether or not somebody can take your life? That's half the equation, and not even that. It's what happens when your life is over, and the God who promised to punish sin, and if it's not covered by the blood of his Son, you'll be punished eternally. Worry about that. I remember listening to a friend of my father pastor in Burlington he would say this on occasion it stuck in my mind he would say pray for your children pray that God saves their souls but pray that God saves their lives too and I thought you know there is a distinction sometimes we use those words interchangeably save my soul save my life you know th th there's enough trouble in this world for your kids to make absolute shipwreck of their lives to where their lives are a miserable existence, to where their character is impugned such that they may never be able uh, to have a happy life with people who trust them, much less be used of God for the glory of heaven. That is because of the curse of sin. And it's only the grace of God. We don't all go that way. There's something to be said about saving your life. You know, your beating heart and your brain waves. Uh, you got to take care of this thing, right? And wouldn't you tell me or agree that most of our prayer lists are saturated not with things having to do with our soul, but things having to do with our life? I have hip replacement. I have a bad shoulder. I, Isaac Mooneyham, have a bad shoulder. I'd love for it to get fixed. But Lord, I hope that my priority is, is my heart, my soul, rather than my body. But that, that more people on this planet are worried today about what they will eat for lunch than where they will spend eternity. In fact, most of us in this room are probably worried more about what we're going to eat for lunch than what we're listening to. Right? 
Sometimes it takes a slap in the face provided from Scripture to remind us we can consume our waking hours concerned with our life, ignoring our soul. But because of Esther and promises, all pointing to this man named Jesus who came here for the purpose of taking away your sin and saving your soul, we have an eternity. Not even to speak at all about our lives. So, with what my father's friend had said, pray for your children, pray for both. There's one you should prize more than the other, of course, because of its eternal significance. But be careful, one parent to another, that you don't concern yourself more with their life, that you ignore their soul. We can do that easily. There's not really a lot said in Esther about the soul. That's the reason why about 400 years goes by with nothing said. And then a man named John sent from God says, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. The point was, none of us will do this. He'll have to do it for us. Because we can't do it for ourselves. So when you pray for your children... Pray that God not only saves their lives, but saves their souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Sunday. We thank you for our space and time, our standing appointment each week in this place, with each other, with your word, opened, looking at it with open eyes as best we can to be honest with what it says, to wear the shoe when it fits, to let you speak to purpose that we listen. Lord, help us to take what was said today regarding taxes, our responsibilities towards those that govern things. Lord, could it be said that we speak peace or look over the welfare of others before our own? Lord, do people think well of us Not because we're cool, but because we're honest and upright. And Lord, may we have the sense to look past this book toward the fullness of time where you came to take care of all our problems by taking care of our ultimate problem, which is our sin. Speak. May we listen. May we tell others. And Lord, we thank you for our time in your house. We ask this in your name. Amen.